Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros, and welcome to episode 21 of the Channel Journeys podcast, sponsored by Channel Journeys Consulting. This is Rob Spee, your host and founder of Channel Journeys Consulting, where I help SaaS technology companies accelerate growth and create powerful partner ecosystems. Last week, I talked about why I'm doing this Channel Journeys podcast in my episode 20 podcast introduction. One reason is so that we can all learn from other channel professionals. And that's why I'm so excited about today's podcast. Also, I'm just back from the Channel Focus event in Carlsbad, California, where we focused on the topic of the rapid channel transformation taking place and how to stay relevant in today's digital market. Well, my guest is channel veteran Jeff Maton, and he's been in the trenches of channel transformation. He's learned what makes partners tick and how to build a partner program that leverages their unique skills and how to make that transition from the old on-premise world to the cloud world. If you're interested in how to build a SaaS partner program, you are going to learn a ton today. Jeff has some fun personal stories as well, and he will get into that towards the end of the show. Some things that you probably won't hear anywhere else but on the Channel Journeys podcast. Are you ready? Let's get started. Jeff, hey, good morning. How's it going? Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. Thank you. Good morning to you, Rob. I appreciate you having me on here. It's going well. Well, yeah, it's a long time in coming. We've been talking for a while about getting you on the show. Glad you could finally join me. And where are we finding you this morning? The 20 I'm in my home office in San Jose, California. Out in San Jose. Excellent. Very good. Well, a lot of things that I'd like to talk about today, Jeff, but why don't we start by just what you're doing today, what your current role is. My current role is I'm Director of Worldwide Channel Programs, Enablement, and Operations at Proofpoint. We're in cybersecurity. We're all SaaS, and we're based out here in Sunnyvale, so close to where I live. But of course, it's a massive commute because of Silicon Valley. But I support the theaters around the world, and I try to make our cams, our salespeople, and our partners better at what they do. And you've been in the channel for a long time in different roles and different types of companies, which is exactly why I want to speak with you, because you have been in mm-hmm. the telecom space, you've been in networking, now yep. you're in security, and all of those types of companies, well, every company in the world really is evolving because of the impact of digital transformation and cloud and all of that, but those types of companies typically have different types of partners, different types of programs. And there's been a lot of talk about channel convergence. And that was a hot topic when I was out at Channel Partners just last week in Vegas. And that's leading me to to really think about this topic. And I'm going to get your thoughts on it too, and kind of the experience and perspectives that you have. Yeah. And I've seen it, but I've seen it from a number of different angles. And so convergent usually means that you're moving in on a single thing. What I've seen convergence is you're moving in on a bunch of different things that try to do the same thing, or at least from a vendor standpoint. And what I mean is there's all these different types of partners from the traditional resellers to MSPs to agents or either a master agent. And those are things I, I encountered in telecom that vendors are trying to use to get to market and get the different classes of customers. And 
if the vendors do it right, they can actually segment and know their routes to market and build different incentives that work and, and kind of wall off to the extent you can different customer segments. If they don't do it right, it's kind of a free-for-all. And it can be very challenging when it's a free-for-all because the incentives don't fit, the enablement doesn't fit, how you put a deal in Salesforce and track it through might not fit, the order packet, all these different things can go wrong. So there's a lot of planning and really a lot of discussion on the front end needs to happen if you want to do it right. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I think their convergence can mean different things and what the reality is versus what people might think it means. So maybe we can start kind of let's talk about the different partner models and, and incentive models that you've experienced, starting with your telco days, where I imagine you had the, the traditional telco agent model and, and residual commission as an incentive. Yeah, and I, I didn't start with that because when I started with, I started with a company, Shortel, and it was a, a prem business, but it had recently purchased a mirror image of itself that was a UCAS or a SaaS business for telecom. So it was 100% channel. So on one side, we had these prem go-sell things, distributors who stocked, and people who went on site to actually sell. So they had a, a different incentive model and different motivations and, and actually a different business model because you had a lot of different people. On the other side, you had all these agents who would, they were called resellers in the, the, the UCAS or the SaaS world there. But really, they were agents. They found deals. They handed them off to a sales team at Shortel. So the vendor handled all the sales process. And that agent got a residual. And there were different tiers and and there were a lot of different contracts. But the net was, find a deal, give it to us, for lack of a better way to put it. Get out of the way and let us close it. If it closes, you get a check every month because it was monthly recurring revenue for what you've done. When you... You know, if you contrasted that with the traditional short-tail reseller, those folks look like a, a traditional IT reseller. They sold something, they marked it up. If they were really smart, they built services that you know up their IP and they could increase margins. And they wanted to own the entire sale and showed up to you with a closed deal on their paper. So there were a lot of different moving parts and we had different ways of dealing with these partners. Did you, did you attempt to converge those two models into one standard model, or did you maintain both the resale and the agent model? We attempted, and quite frankly, we were successful. And it took a couple of years, but we ended up with a program that had both the agent model and the reseller model in it. And what we did is, I'm a highly collaborative person. Like I love the detective work component of being in the channel, because usually you have a small team. There's a lot of salespeople around. There's a lot of partners around. And you're trying to satisfy a lot of different stakeholders. So over the course of six to nine months, I did probably 50 or 60 interviews of partners and our people and folks like you. And basically, we came up with a model that converted revenue, whether it was prem revenue or cloud revenue, to points. And cloud revenue, we wanted to move to cloud, as everyone did. This was you know five or six years ago. Everyone wanted to get there faster, so we over-incented on cloud revenue, meaning a dollar of cloud revenue was worth more points than a dollar of prem revenue. And we had one program that said, instead of a dollar figure at the top, you know, traditional program, you're going to have a points target. And any points you get, whether you sell prem or cloud, it didn't matter. We just summed them all. Whatever you got, 
counted towards your tiers, which counted towards a discount on prem business you sold, or a commission that you got from selling cloud. So we were really successful because we involved a lot of partners in it. We also gave a lot of incentives to move faster. You probably know, Rob, when you do this at the end of your year and you have a program that looks better to partners that you've told them about six months earlier, because we got approval to do that, so that was good, the partners might tend to hold some deals on you because they want to get more credit next year, even though... So we did is we said, look, if you get to... We'll just keep doing rolling four quarters. And the sooner you get to a higher tier, the sooner we'll actually promote you. doesn't matter if it's a partner year. doesn't matter when it is. And so what happened was we got a lot of partners who actually got promoted because they could start selling and get conversions earlier before the program was even in place. Because we just said, we'll, we'll run the numbers for you. And if you're there, we'll move you. And we ended up getting a lot more revenue in early and partners getting promoted and partners being really happy with it. And it's one of the only examples I have in my career. And this is, you know, people in channels will say, it's the only example, one of the only examples I have where the program was celebrated, not tolerated. And I really, I always remember that. So we had a lot of success, but it was an incredible amount of work. Uh, so that point you just made, though, I think about timing of when you advance a partner in the tiers. It sounds like when you were not, you were waiting to the end of the year to advance them, they held on to deals because they knew they were going to get a higher discount right. once they reached the right. requirements. Then you changed it. Then you changed it to advancing them more immediately. Was that like at the end of the quarter or just as soon as they hit it? We did a quarterly review. We just we didn't have the people and the the tools to actually look at them in real time. Although we did have fantastic dashboards. Okay. So we simply said, look, you know, we'll do a quarterly review. Look back. We'll do an annual review every quarter, and we'll look back. And we'll do it two ways. We'll do it with the, the program you have right now, and we'll just we'll do it the other way is we'll assume the the new program, which is going to give you more for cloud is in effect. Whichever you do better on, that's what will count. Yeah. And that's how we did it. Okay. Yeah, that's a great point for people that have a tiered program is the unintended consequences if you review annually. Yeah, not everyone needs a tiered program. No, they don't. They don't. I think many companies are moving away from that as we speak. You had a resell model for the on-premise business. Right. You had the uh, agent model for the cloud business, yes. and you you maintained that for the, the time that you were there at Shortel? Yes, and our goal was, and we had a lot of partners, prem partners, who wanted to move the cloud, and we certainly wanted them to move. We didn't want to just throw away all our partners and use all these new but very small partners we got in the acquisition. So we wanted to incent these partners we had, the traditional partners, to transform with us to the cloud. We actually built a whole business transformation program ran workshops, had our CFO walk through with partners the challenges we face in terms of cash flow and how long it takes and it's going to hurt for a couple of years. So we showed them we were in it together and we invested in them and we ended up moving a lot of those partners to the cloud in a way that actually resulted in, we have a, a thing called, or we had a thing called Circle of Excellence, which is just, was just our recognition program. Top 10 partners in the world in terms of how you do your recurring revenue. It flipped within two years from all cloud partners on the cloud side to all prem partners. And the prem partners had like an order of magnitude more revenue than the biggest cloud partner ever had. So it worked because these partners had more reach and it was great success. The downside, Rob, was we started to ignore those cloud partners who came with the acquisition. And over time, they left. And so granted, they had small revenue, but man, if we had, in hindsight, if we had invested a little bit more in them, 
I think they could have done a lot more given our scale and our reach. So that was a miss, but we more than made up with it, uh, made up for it with the other partners. What type of partners were those cloud, the original cloud partners that were under the agent model through the acquisition? What did they look like? Did they look like telco agents? They did. And there were a lot of really small telco agents, you know, three, 10, maybe 20 person teams that were concentrated in, in typically in high density urban areas. So we had a lot in New York. You had a lot in, well, and that's where the, the company we bought was from. So we had a lot there because they could get personal touch from the, the channel managers. But we had a lot there. And their whole thing was, they were dialing and they had relationships and they sold a lot of things, cabling, other stuff into companies, but it was all telecom related. And they moved to the, the cloud very quickly because they all signed up with master agents and were able to access all these different telecom and cloud type products because telecom was a monthly recurring before we had monthly recurring or annual recurring, right? And now cloud comes and it's the same right, type of payment right. model. It fit perfectly for them. And what I mean is they didn't have to modify any commission plans, any sales process, which the prem guys had to. So we had a lot of telecom agents who either contracted directly with us or went through a master agent and, and let the master agent take a cut. Right. So on the other side, the flip side, the partners that were on-prem resellers, what did they look like? Were they kind of your typical regional VAR? They were. And you know, we had a smattering of, of national you also had the DMRs and national retailers like a, a CDW. Yep. And, it, you know, let's, let's just put the DMRs over on the side for a second. But your regional bars sure. or your bars that were regional who, who now had a national footprint, they had a salesperson supported by an SE or two salespeople supported by an SE. They physically went out and talked to customers. They did everything, including demos. If there was proof of concept, they did it. So they did the work of the vendor and we're, able, we're the outsourced arm of the vendor, right? That we didn't have to hire as many salespeople because an SEs, because the traditional IT VAR was out selling and, and performing all the steps of the sales process, process, including closing the deal and bringing it to us. So that's what they look like the traditional, like you said. How did they react to the new model, the cloud model, where I assume or maybe I shouldn't assume, but you were paying the commission. So you you were billing, the, as the vendor, you were billing the customer, right? Yep. They did not like that portion. Did they object? Yeah, that loss of control that they have or ownership they sense of, of owning that billing relationship? Yeah, there were two places they really objected. So ultimately, Rob, they were happy to move. They knew they had to go to cloud. The fact that we empathized with them and showed that we understood the cash flow struggles. Like our CFO was actually making presentations to him about our own cash flow struggles, right? So we wanted to show this isn't us. This isn't us forcing you to go. This is the market forcing both of us to go for this huge opportunity. But there were two places that they really objected. One was the billing and the ownership. That was a really huge thing for them. But to be able to bill a telecom service with all the taxes and tariffs and things that are involved, that's a really hard thing to build. and you know, by a system. So they couldn't do that. We already had it, right? The second thing was customer service and support. That was another place where they felt they were losing a touch point with the customer. Ultimately, because they were getting paid monthly and the checks were coming off of a sale, they were, they were okay with all this. But those two places really tested their thought of what it meant to be in business to support a customer. Yeah. Did you have any MSPs in the mix? We had a few. And they, but they were largely the big telecom carriers who who performed 
telecom service, including support. They helped implement. So we had that. But with a cloud service, it's purely SaaS. There's not as much implementation you can do unless you really break down the, the installation points. So we tended to get away from that. So it was kind of a, I won't say it's an MSP light, but it was more of, it looked like a telecom service and the partner build and the partner actually performed support. So it was a, a kind of a lighter beginning stage of MSP. Okay, got you. It's not the MSP that we often think of, you know, the tens of thousands that are out there providing managed services to their often small and mid-sized business customers. Right, right. I have that now, where I am now, but I, I didn't see it as much there. It was just harder to do. Now, on the prem side, before we started moving to cloud at Shortel, we had a, a fair amount of MSPs because they could buy a bunch of gear, put it in their own data center, have complete control, and build a service around it. Yeah. But when we moved to cloud, or, or it was it was much harder because you know it's our data center, it's our platform, our instance. It's, it's there's a lot more security and questions you have to get it figured out. And so those MSPs weren't very keen to move over to the new model. They weren't, and they they weren't a huge part of the business. But for those who were, and I remember specifically a couple in Australia, they wanted as hard as they could, or they tried as hard as they could to keep their model, and to keep buying equipment and to own that. And they weren't. They saw cloud more as competition to what they already did. That was they thought it was the same. It's just it wasn't. You know, it wasn't usually a multi-tenant thing. So, or they might have spun up their own. So. Yeah, they had trouble with it. Yeah. And this was what, four or five years ago? Probably 14, yeah. So four and five. We started looking at things in 14 and 15. So this reluctance that you just described on the MSP side is the same story I heard at Channel Partners four or five years later yeah. when, I, when I was just there. Right. This is what I'm thinking is, is one of the big impediments to this supposed convergence of partners or partner business models. Right. What... What are you seeing today? So let's fast forward to where you are now with Proofpoint. What kind of partners are you working with today? So today we have a lot of traditional IT vendors. We certainly have MSPs and global SIs. That's a smaller part of our business, but a growing part of the business. But really, when you look at it, Rob, the traditional IT vendor who's moved to selling cloud services to their client base, it's who we have now. When you say traditional IT vendor, you mean the traditional VAR, the IT service provider? Yes. A lot of what I talked about when I was at Shortel at the end, and then when I was at Citrix for a little bit, we looked at Born in the Cloud, we looked at new models. But what I saw, both at Citrix and now I see here, is these are traditional IT folks who used to sell things and have transitioned over to cloud and love a recurring revenue model. They might not all be all the way there, but they're used to selling a transaction that's a big dollar amount getting paid and moving on to the next deal. So they have responded favorably and are adopting the cloud model and your, your payment structure. So, well, let's confirm that. What is your payment structure, your incentive structure to those, those IT, the VARs? It looks like a traditional model. It's a deal that's a certain dollar amount for a given time period, usually one to three year uh, contracts. And it's so it's sold at a value that looks like a prem deal. It's a big deal. So those partners didn't have to change their compensation structure. They can pay a one-time commission to their people. And the good news is because it's a recurring revenue model, it's a, it's a pretty good, there's a pretty good bet that right. next year you're going to get that deal again. And so the, the, that's up to the partner to decide what their comp looks like. Do you pay as if it's a new sale? Do you pay on renewals? Do you, you know, or are you just getting your people to hunt? So 
it's less of a change to them that if it was a full SaaS thing sold through, it's sold in a different way, but it's sold at a, a bigger contract value than, than a, a monthly recurring or annual recurring. Are they buying it as a reseller discount or effectively you're giving them a commission on, the, on a sale? It's a reseller discount. Some places there's distribution involved. So it looks, it looks a lot like traditional sales. Okay, gotcha. And do you have any residual commission models in your partner program? Is that an option for any partner? We don't. And we're getting to the point that, that where what I'm at liberty to talk about and not talk about, given that I'm here and I work for a security company. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough, fair enough, Jeff. I don't want to get you in trouble, or me either. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so you do have some MSPs in your mix. You know, without getting into any specifics, what do you think about this convergence then? And, and well, first, let me tell you what I think. I, I don't think it's happening. I think... My perspective is the, the traditional telco agents, as long as they can keep their model pure, they're happy to move up to the new services as technology evolves and take on mm-hmm. SD-WAN and UCAS and, and everything else that's coming out, as long as it's that agent commission model. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, the MSPs are moving much more slowly to adopting those types of services because most of the vendors only offer it as a commission model, and then they have all the control issues that we just talked about. I agree. I don't know as much about what other vendors are doing, but I agree based on, I think we had, we talked a little bit earlier in this around the agent model, them selling through either a master agent or through a vendor who pays them a commission, a residual is the same exact model they've been selling on for years. So they don't care. There's, there's so little disruption, if, if any, to what they sell. They, they can just increase their line card either by selling or excuse me, signing with a new vendor or I talk about the master agents. There's, there's master agents who they started as telecom, but they have everything now. And if you can sell yeah. it and get paid and your commission checks just keep going up, it's so little disruption and it's so favorable to agents. The flip side there is agents don't do, well, this is, this is an overgeneralization, right? They don't do any work. They find a deal. They, they do some light qualification, but then they hand it to the vendor. And the vendor still has all the costs of the sale but they're paying on a commission. I agree with you on the MSP side. Again, I don't have as much input on what other vendors are doing, but I think this is more of a disruption to their business model. And you know, we're all human and we don't like to make a lot of changes. So the brave ones will make changes right. and will adapt. The ones who don't want as much of that risk and want to keep it the way it is, I think it's really challenging for them right now. Yeah. It was interesting at Channel Partners, they were talking about the MSP model and, and how a lot of the services that they traditionally provided have been cannibalized by the cloud. One guy gave an example of on-prem exchange. That was a big service for these guys. And as more and more people move exchange to the cloud, they don't have those, that management service that they used to offer. I think it comes down to who's going to evolve and who's not. Because we all have to do what we need to do to stay in business to make money. In that example, on-prem exchange, there's value around doing something on top of that or before that or during that, that some partners have figured out. And that, that is them coming out with a new service that people are willing to pay for that's profitable. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was at, at Citrix, when I was there, I wasn't there for a long time, but we were doing going, and I was the partner enablement. I was worldwide partner enablement there. I did not own the partner program. That was a discrete function owned by someone else. And that other team was changing to get more to cloud. And a lot of their messaging was incredibly honest, which I appreciated. 
look, these things at the bottom of the stack are not valuable. They're not valuable anymore. In fact, these are going to be automated in our cloud solution. These things up top, these are things you need to move to if you want to make money. We're telling you now because we know it takes investments. This is the change. You're not going to like this. But if we all want to survive and, and be here and make money, we have to make these changes. So I thought it was very good of them to at least say, and it goes, how do you deliver a message? Because you want to be honest about it and tell them there are places you can make money, but they're not where you are today. So you need to reinvest. You get to make that decision, not me. But I'm showing you what I think will work for you. And I've seen vendors recently not do that and just make the move and not go that extra mile to say, we know that we're making a change. We know that you will see this as costing you money, Mr. and Mrs. Partner. However, here are some places we think you can make it up. Let's talk about this together. I've seen people forget to do that second step. Yeah, that's really important. I think the way you put it, framed it earlier was, this isn't just us. This is the market. This is the market that's changing, and we have to adapt to survive, and you have to adapt to survive. The commission model, or even under the resale model, you know, kind of, there's always traditionally been that argument about how much do you pay resellers for renewals. The same argument comes up under the SaaS model, and how much should we keep paying them? And the telcos have always said, hey, we're going to just keep paying and paying and paying in perpetuity as long as that, you know, for the life of the customer. But I've had conversations with the CFO and the CRO who don't want to keep paying on SaaS commissions year after year. They say, well, let's pay 50% in year two, and then we'll phase it out in year three. What are your thoughts on that? I've had those exact same conversations because the numbers get big. And so I did a lot of analysis, and I'm only a couple of years removed from Shortel, right? And then Shortel got bought by Mitel, and they, they, I think they standardized it on the cloud program. But I did a lot of analysis of competitors. And the problem you have, Rob, is that you may want to decrease your commissions or residuals, but when you look at what competitors are doing and they pay in perpetuity, you can't. Unless you're willing to forego some early, some revenue, which most companies aren't, you've got to match what competitors are doing. But it's a massive challenge. It's a big line item, only getting bigger. And I saw competitors paying up to 25% commissions. So a quarter of every dollar that came in went to a partner who the work they did was to find a deal and lightly qualify it. They might have done some work, but they gave it to you to close. So I think it's incumbent upon a vendor who's in that position to try to do two things. One, if they can decrease residuals for renewals, do it. They'll have a hard time giving competitive, competitive, competitive market and what competitors are doing. And two is, I think they need to look at what's their sales model, how do they pay, how do they make it easier to buy to reduce costs? Because if you're paying a quarter of every dollar, and again, that's the extreme. Most partners are in the, the high teens. But if you're paying a quarter for every dollar, that stuff adds up and the CFO does see it. And the CFO is right to say, this is a big line item, we need to fix it. So I think it's really challenging. Yeah, and, and a lot of competitive pressure on that front. Yeah, I think, you know, in an ideal world, when you are setting up your partner program or doing your analysis, you have laid out the, the sales process and to now you actually lay out the buying process and the influencing process and the implementation process, and you divide it into stages. You know, most companies do a sales stage model. They don't do an influence stage or an implementation stage, but you should. And then every one of those, you look at what's valuable in each one of these actual stages. Who can do it? Can a partner do it? Can they make money here? And then if you do that, you might have a better story around, yeah, we're going to reduce your residuals, and you may want to, on renewals, And you may want to go with another competitor, 
But look at all these other places where you can participate and make money with us because we built programs for you. Now, that's grossly oversimplifying and there's tons of work. But I think that's a much better story. And it's a much more holistic look at the reality of a cloud service today. It's incredibly hard to do. And most of us just jump into our jobs and don't actually do that and never sit down and say, what is the value of the partner? What do we want them to do? How would that help us long-term? But if we had that conversation with the right people at the high enough levels in the company, I think it would bear fruit. Yeah, and I think that's where this wraps up is, is in program design. And we talked about the need for partners to be flexible, but the vendor, the supplier needs to be flexible too and set up a program that may have different elements driving different behavior. There's the sales behavior you want to drive. There may be the product adoption and expansion behavior that you want to drive. And those will likely be very, they will be different incentives to drive that and maybe even different partner types. Right. And that's where if you look at all those different things that a partner can do from the influencing all the way through the sales to the implementation, that's when you ask questions like, do I need an annual program? Do I need tiers? Do I even care about that stuff? Because it was easy to do before. And I, I have one right now that I inherited. And I'm not changing it because it fits where we are right now. But where are we going? And what do we want people to do? And is it worth it to them and to us to do it? And then it takes a lot of work just to figure out, okay, how the heck do you check all these little different things you want to incent your partners on and then make sure they're doing it well? So, But it, it's, it's part of the design. It's just a lot of work to be comprehensive and to try to do it right. So, And that's why, like I said, I like a collaborative approach. As long as I have people who want to help me, I'm okay. So. Yeah, it's getting more complex. On one hand, you got to keep it simple. Partners mm-hmm. want simplicity and ease, but you also add some complexity yes. with these new models. I'm starting to see some really innovative new channel tech companies coming out to address that very challenge. I'll probably have one on the show in the near future. I think there's more there in, in terms of we just need to make clear that it's, it doesn't matter what sector of tech you're in. Figure out what's important, what's valuable, what you want partners to do, and then build the programs, whether it's enablement, incentive, et cetera, to allow them to do it. So that's where I think the planning comes in and the program design is key. Yeah. That there is convergence, like you just said. doesn't matter what kind of technology the company's in. All of this still applies. Well, let's, let's jump over to your personal side and, and a little bit about your channel journey. What got you into the channel business in the first place? And I think you've had a number of different channel roles from channel sales and channel marketing and channel program. Yep. And it's funny because I thought about this a couple of years ago when I was thinking about you know making a move and what do I want to do and, and why am I in the channel? And it came back to, I've always been the channel. Like I didn't even realize that, that there's some, like when you look on my LinkedIn profile, it goes back so long. But I have some jobs right after college we actually worked for heavy equipment manufacturers. I worked for a company and I actually operated the largest bulldozer in the world because the product marketing people got to do that. And I was actually the channel guy at this heavy equipment manufacturer. I worked with the dealer network and supported them with training, with things like blueprints so they could modify and do product extensions and charge more, right? Because you want to add on. So I did that in my 20s. And I loved working with companies outside of my own. And after going to grad school and then doing some other things and actually doing a little sabbatical because I was, I was single and I could do these things, I took off almost two years. I came back to the point of, I love working with partners. And I've always liked helping those who sell to customers be better. And so I decided right then, and I think it was around 2000, I'm going to work with partners. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to standardize on that because I've done a lot of different things. 
So that's what got me here. I like doing it. I've done, like you said, I was a cam way back, but that was in a retail world. And I've standardized on programs because I typically get enablement and operations in there. And I just love the program component of figuring out a way where both sides can make money, both sides are happy, and it saves people time in terms of rules of engagement. They don't have to worry about things. They got nice, clear guidelines, and they go do it, and it's repeatable. And when you can make it work, people thank you. And it's a job you don't get a lot of thanks in. And that's my whole thing. I want people to say thanks. This actually helps me make some money and help some customers. Yeah, I don't know how much thanks you get. Um, you'll get a lot of complaints when you have a crappy yep. program. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or policies, or you don't want to make an exception. We were talking earlier about different things around types of partners and, and what you'll allow. And I've been in companies that love referral partners. Like they just go find a deal, not an agent model, but they found something and give it to you and get paid. I've also been in companies that will not do it. And when I show up with a hey, we've got a partner who found something, but they can't close it or they're not allowed to sell it. Can we pay them? No, don't bring that to me. So it's just different. The different companies are different and the timing is everything. Is there any reason not to have a referral program, residual commission program, and a resale program, all three in your partner program and go-to-market strategy? I'm, I'm sure there are reasons not to. That's incredibly flexible for partners if you want that. And if you're really partner-friendly, you can have it. But it may break some things internally around how you pay people if partners, long-standing partners have status and can't take advantage of something or get knocked out of a deal because someone referred. So you just look at, again, go back to what we talked about around what do you value throughout the entire sales, influencer, and implementation process, and then build to that. And you may come to the conclusion given where you are as a vendor and where you want to go, all three of those work for you and you're fine with them. Just make sure you build them well. You may come to the conclusion that, no, they don't work for us and here are the reasons. But it's just, you got to think about it first. It's not just a yes, no question that you can answer in in a couple minutes. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have a whole other podcast on that question then. Okay, okay. So you did a two-year hiatus, a two-year time off. What did you do on that walkabout? So... I actually was looking, I did a lot of volunteer work and I was looking, I'm in the Bay Area, so I I had a specific thing I wanted to do and I wanted to see if I could actually move to nonprofit and afford to live here. The answer was no, (laughs) but I did did a lot of volunteer work then. I did a lot of travel. I had some friends in Europe. I have family around the country. I have family I hadn't seen in like 30 years. It was really funny to see grown up people that, you know, they were little when I was there. So that was good. And I also took, some photography courses. Like I actually went and and sat down and learned more about it or went on trips with professional photographers to learn how to do landscape photography because I really enjoyed that and hiking. And so that's what I was able to do a lot of, plus the different volunteer work to see where I might fit and how I might help. So it was great. And it's, it's one of those things where when I came back to work, it was a time where the job market wasn't as good. But, and so people said, tell me about this gap in your resume. And as soon as I did, they either were really happy and smiled or got really mad at me because they could never do that. So <laughs> I had a good answer. It just depended on who was sitting across from me. Right, right, exactly. Did you tell me in a prior conversation that you spent the night in a homeless shelter? Yeah, I do. I'm in, so, so yes. And my wife and I actually spent our first married Christmas in a homeless shelter because we didn't have kids. They needed the overnight volunteers. We did that stuff on a regular basis. We, that was part of our volunteer work. So they said, hey, we don't have anyone here. And 
we weren't working up waking up with kids on Christmas. So we just said, yeah, we'll do it. So yeah, I've done that and I continue to do it here in San Jose. Not to stay over, although I could. I've been more of getting my kids involved to help out on intake, helping make lunches, having dinner with the guests, et cetera. So it's it's just been a different phase of volunteering now that I have kids. Yeah, but it's great that you're bringing them into it as well. Yeah, one would hope. I hope they don't want to buy more dolls and get more stuff and always need to have slime and understand that they're, they're pretty well off. So, But it is fun when they're there and helping. Yeah, that's excellent. And are you still into the landscape photography? Not as much, but I do some. So I'm at a disadvantage because my wife is a fantastic portrait photographer. She's a graphic designer, but she's taking time off to, to raise the kids. But she used to date professional photographers. And so she is way better than me at all this stuff. She knows more. And I don't have as much time to get out there. But when I do, you know, on family vacations, we're, we're taking some pictures of things. And I'm usually taking pictures of off the distance. And she's doing really artsy stuff up close that usually includes kids. <laughs> so who, who's doing the selfies? Oh, the kids. So they want every TV show they watch has selfies. So they're trying to do it. We do, but it's, we're trying to dissuade that type of behavior. Lose, losing battle. Yeah, it's hard to fight trends and technology and everything else that's taking place. And, you know, it's funny because I went to India a couple of years ago to do some partner road shows for Citrix. When I landed, bombarded with massive billboards at the airport in Mumbai of all the Bollywood stars with phones and the entire advertising campaign was based on how well those phones made selfies. And so I'm like, wow, this is everywhere. And that's all you saw. Well, I was in Singapore a couple of years ago, and I was impressed by how many of the tourists had selfie sticks. And I had never seen such a crowd of people around Singapore with selfie sticks, all taking pictures of themselves with, you know, the buildings and whatever in the background. Yeah, it's more reach your arm out, get what you can. Much more than you see here. Well, excellent, Jeff. It's been a great conversation. Any final thoughts that you have for our listeners? Any tips as a program leader? I think there's two things. One, there's great value in listening to your other podcasts. I've listened to a few. I love them. I think you had Heather McGarlis, Taylor McDonald do ones recently. I had both of those in the last week. So listen to those. The, the tip I have on program design is it goes back to what we said, it's the fundamentals. Spend time on planning. You know, whiteboard, put it on Excel, whatever it is, the entire journey of a customer, all the way through implementation and support to get them to renewal, segment it and figure out where you fit, where there's value, where partners can, can perform services and add value, and then figure out, can we build a program to incent them? Will they make money? What does the enablement look like? Like, take a systematic look at how you're doing this and try to do that once a year. Because I think that that works out. And then it works out really well when your company understands the channel and values them. It's harder to have that meeting when it's just, I want them to go find deals and we'll do the rest. But there's value in doing it. So I, I say that if you're going to do one thing, do that. But it's really hard because it takes time. And you can't have a selfie stick. You can't have your phone. You can't be distracted. You just have to focus on it for hours, if not a day. They were really good. I really appreciate them. So thank you. Yeah. Great advice, Jeff. And, and thanks for the plug for my podcast. You too, Rob. Happy to ha chat again whenever. All right. Well, thanks for making this one so great. And you have a great rest of the day. Look forward to chatting with you again soon. Hey, guys, that was a great conversation with a channel pro who's learned from experience. 
Thanks again to Jeff Maton for sharing lessons from his journey through channel transformation. He gave us a ton of valuable content today. One that I'm going to use is the idea of mapping out the entire customer journey on a whiteboard, segmenting each stage and looking for where the partner can add value and make money. And that's likely going to be different types of partners that can play a role in the different stages. That's very important as we think about the growing world and, and options for partner types in our entire partner ecosystem. As always, you can find key takeaways, show notes, and resource links on my website. For this episode, that would be found at channeljourneys.com backslash CJ21. Next week, I have another awesome guest, Ryan Walsh from PAX8. He and his team are disrupting the world of cloud distribution. You do not want to miss this one. Until then, make some great partnerships and have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.